Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. We are sinners. We can do nothing to save ourselves, but Jesus has died in our place, and there's none that we can look to except Him. But if we will look to Him by faith, He can save. And everything we've been talking about in the book of Ephesians that we've been studying lately comes back to the gospel. It's given us instructions for our marriages and our families, and today we'll look at Paul's words about work and our motivation and relationships about work, but none of this is moralism. None of this is just a pattern of how we ought to live just because it's right. All of this is how we live because Jesus Christ is Lord, and He has died to save us and has made us His, and now we look to live for His glory in each of these relationships. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to Ephesians chapter 6. And I hope that you might uh, follow along with me as I read. The whole goal this morning is not to hear me talk, it's to hear the Lord's Word. And the only way to hear God speak is to read His Word and to check to make sure everything that I am saying is faithful to the Word of God in front of you. But our goal is to read Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 9 this morning. Let's read God's Word together. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. And masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, how we thank you that in your word you have told us about Jesus Christ, who has died for us and offers us eternal life if we put our faith in him. But then you speak to us in your word and you tell us how all of our relationships in every day are changed by the gospel. So I pray this morning as we think about work that you would convict us of sin and draw us to yourself and make us more like you for Christ's sake. In his name we pray. Amen. I think at the heart of our passage this morning is a question. And the question is, what is the relationship between Sunday and Monday? A couple of years ago, I ran across a guy who was wearing a t-shirt, and across the front of his t-shirt were seven stick figures. The first stick figure was drooped over on the ground with X's for eyes, as if he was dead. The second was sitting up, but still on the ground, looking rather miserable. The third was standing... The fourth was smiling, and the fifth was dancing with the sixth stick figure in an all-out party. But then, of course, the seventh 
stick figure was wearing a grimace on its face, tired and worn out. And of course, as you might be able to figure out, these seven stick figures were representing how this person felt on the seven days of the week. Monday nearly dead, each day getting a little better till the party on Saturday, and then the grimace on Sunday as they headed towards Monday morning. That's one theology, if you will, of the relationship between Sunday and Monday. I was remembering growing up talking to a friend. We were out in the yard playing one day, and I happened to ask, you know, well, what, what's your favorite and least favorite day of the week? And I remember saying, well, it's not a day of the week, but my least favorite is definitely Sunday night because it means Monday's coming when I wake up the next morning. Well, here in our passage, Paul gives us a very different view of the relationship between Sunday and Monday. Because in Paul's view, who we are in Christ and our worship of Christ on Sunday completely change how we are to think about our work from Monday through Friday. And Paul, once again, first addresses those who are under authority, under teachers or managers. And then he instructs those who are in authority, telling both how their faith in Christ ought to change their work. I want to look at each group, but before I do that, I want to begin by addressing what is often the elephant in the room when we read a passage like this. Because this passage is addressed to masters and slaves. And some have looked at this passage and say, well, why does Paul not condemn slavery in this passage? In fact, when addressing masters and how they're supposed to treat their slaves, he never mentions anything about freeing them. From a 21st century perspective, Paul's words can seem incredibly lacking. They may even leave Christians a bit embarrassed because it seems like the Bible is treating slavery as all well and good. And if that's the case, we need to remember three things. First, we need to remember that slavery in the Roman world was not the race-based chattel slavery of American history. In fact, the Bible clearly and explicitly condemns the enslavement that was practiced in early America. Exodus 21.16 says, whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. If we want to know Scripture's position on the enslaving practices in early America, that is clearly spoken in Exodus 21. But slavery in the ancient world, though it was certainly subject to sin and cruelty, as a system was a more fluid social labor arrangement. Remember, there was no market economy back then. The world was arranged differently. Often, people committed themselves to slavery to pay a debt. Slavery was oftentimes the means of punishment for theft or other crimes. At other times, it was a system that provided protection and provision for unskilled laborers in exchange for their work. Sometimes, of course, conquered people were consigned to slavery. But you could also work your way out of slavery. In fact, in one 30-year period in the first century, shortly before the New Testament was written, we have record to indicate that in that 30-year period, a half a million slaves bought their way out of slavery. Some of them became more wealthy than their masters, almost as if it was a, an apprentice-like program. Others earned citizenship and political position. So we have to remember that our vision of slavery, when we think of American history, is not what Scripture was familiar with. Second, 
We have to recognize that while the Bible does address slaves and masters, it never condones slavery. It does seek to regulate it with justice and protect the vulnerable. In fact, we can see that here in Ephesians. Think about how Paul has talked about marriage and the family. Paul said marriage was God's plan for a man and a woman rooted in creation, quoting Genesis 2. For the family, children were to obey their parents, and Paul said this was God's plan from the beginning and quoted the Ten Commandments. But slavery gets no such commendation. Slavery is not rooted in God's created order. It is not a command of Scripture. But Paul's purpose here was to address how Christians should act in the situation they find themselves in. He's not interested in overthrowing or changing political structures. In individual situations, Paul may well counsel, say Philemon, to set his uh, slave Onesimus free as a new brother in Christ that Onesimus might serve Paul in the gospel. He might urge Corinthian Christians to gain their freedom if they can, as he does in 1 Corinthians 7.21. These are his counsel in individual situations. But Paul's key assumption is that Christians should continue in whatever situation they were when they came to Christ, but should now live in that situation in a new manner, with new motivation as new creations in Christ. And that's Paul's main point here in Ephesians 6. And then finally, I think we should recognize that the principles Paul establishes do bring equality in a way that undermine any dehumanizing system. Masters and slaves are equal before God, Paul says. They should treat one another with sincerity and justice. They are brothers and sisters in Christ in whom there is neither slave nor free. They're to serve and to care for one another in the Lord. And so as Christian ethics began to influence societies in different ways, it's no wonder that the slave system would not last. But all of this is to say that as Christians, we should not be embarrassed that Paul does not make his first words an attempt to revolutionize the Roman economy. That was not his concern. Rather, the key point he is making is that in the church, there will be some who work for others and some who manage their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And the question is, in this system of authority in the workplace, how should we work and treat one another? That's Paul's key point. Well, let's look then at each scenario. First, let's look at those who work, whether it's as students in school or as employees for a boss under authority. Couldn't help but think, students, that for many of you, this is back to school week. I think this is a perfect text for us to think about this week. But in verses 5 through 8, Paul describes the behavior, the principle, and the motivation for a believer's approach to work. The behavior of a Christian worker is stated very simply and directly in verse 5. You see it right there. He or she ought to obey those in authority with fear and trembling. As Paul has been explaining for the last three weeks, believers ought to submit to one another where proper authority is in play. And so those who work under someone else's authority ought to submit to and obey the direction given to them unless it is unbiblical. And once again, this command is not made dependent upon having a good boss or a fair teacher. The point is not how good your teacher or boss is or whether they're doing what you think is right. Students ought to obey teachers, employees, their managers, and bosses, and they ought to do so with fear and trembling. 
Now, in English, this phrase, fear and trembling, might seem like a bit of an odd one. It might seem to address, suggest that we have to be scared in our uh, situation under authority. But that's not the heart of the words. The sense of the phrase here involves recognizing a person's position over you and responding with respect and submission. And we're to do this, Paul says, with a sincere heart. There maybe is the challenge. Maybe we're willing to submit and follow, but are we willing to do it with an attitude of genuine earnestness and sincerity, not with cynicism, disrespect, or arrogance? I think that's where we would have to acknowledge that we often run into difficulty. Students, how many times have you had an attitude of dislike, maybe grumbling that your teacher's not teaching anything important, is giving useless homework, or is arbitrary in their discipline. For those of us who are at work, how many times do we think that our boss has made an unwise decision and grumbled about it and spread discontent around the office? Of course, there may be times when a bad decision has been made, and even times when we may need to speak about that decision. But when those times arise, a Christian is always to do so with respect and with humility, and that disagreement must not diminish their genuine sincerity and working hard and obeying and honoring those in authority over them. So that's our behavior. But why should a Christian do that? And Paul brings it all back to one key principle. Anyone who has been saved by Christ is no longer primarily working for a teacher or a company or a boss. Anyone who has been saved by Christ is now primarily working for their Lord. And Paul hammers this home again and again. You see it in verse 5. He calls us to obey those in authority as we would obey Christ. Because if we belong to Christ, then in fact, we are now working for the Lord and not for men. And this is so freeing. Many of you may not like school. Maybe you don't like an individual class or teacher. Many of you may not like your job or your boss. But think how many of us will do something we don't love and even do it cheerfully and wholeheartedly if we are doing it for the sake of someone that we love. I was thinking this week how many 18th and 19th century period dramas have been watched willingly and cheerfully by men for the sake of their wives or girlfriends. Think of how often a a parent will go someplace that they utterly dislike, but they will do it gladly because of the smile it puts on their daughter's face. Yesterday, my family and I spent the day in Baltimore at the Maryland Science Center and reminded me, I typically on my days off I'm a bit of a homebody. I rest best at home. And so I have a personal preference that I would not go anywhere that is more than 18 minutes from home on my days off. Of course, Kate and the kids have been around the house all week, and my days off are the best days for us to go much further than 18 minutes from home. But I think I can say that I don't just do it grudgingly, but have genuinely come to love these trips for their sake and the sake of the family. And this is, I think, the principle at stake here. As we go back to school this week or arrive back in the office tomorrow morning, the question for us really has nothing to do with how much we like school or our job. The question is, how much do we love Jesus? And if we love our Savior, then we will gladly and wholeheartedly do our work for Him 
and for His sake. Because we are to work with joyful sincerity and diligence for Him. Then Paul goes on and says we should work not as people pleasers or when we're being watched, but as servants of Christ. In other words, because we are united to Jesus, we are no longer primarily concerned with pleasing ourselves or pleasing our teacher or keeping our boss happy. Our desire is to serve Christ and to please Him. You know, there's an old accountability test when it comes to driving. It goes like this. If you slowed down when you passed the police car, you were probably driving too fast. And the same thing can be said at school or work. If you start working better or more quickly when the teacher or the boss comes by, you probably were not working wholeheartedly in the first place. But Christ is always with us. We are not to be working for eye service to please those around us. We're to be working for Him. And He is always with us. We're to do all of our work for Him and not to please men. Now, maybe some of you think, well, boy, that really ratchets up the pressure and the stress. I'm working for Christ and He's always watching me. But this actually does just the opposite. It removes the mundanity, the boredom, or the hamster wheel and instead infuses our work with purpose and significance and joy. Because now, each and every day in school, And each and every day that we show up at the office becomes an opportunity to please Jesus. That is a freeing privilege. And then Paul goes on and adds yet another encouragement. In verse 6, he says that in our work, we are to do the will of God from the heart. Under all normal circumstances, it is God's will that we are to work. When God created us, it says that He put the man in the garden to work it and keep it. Before sin was around, God created us to work. And even more, when we go to a particular job, we are fulfilling His calling, doing the job He has given us to do. And so at work, we're not to just put on a show or to keep up appearances. Our work is not to be filled with complaints or weary begrudgment. We are to desire to do our work diligently, faithfully, respectfully, and well from our hearts because this is God's will for us, both generally as mankind created to work and specifically as those God has called to our job and our schools. So here's our behavior. We are to obey with fear and trembling. And the principle, we are working for the Lord, not for men. But you see in verse 8 then that Paul ends by giving us a motivation for this work. And the motivation is that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord. And my guess is we have all sorts of different motivations at different times. Maybe we're motivated by a pay raise. Maybe we're motivated by getting on the honor roll. Maybe we're motivated by the respect of others in the office. But some of these will not come. Maybe our hard work seems like no one will notice. Maybe we'll never be valedictorian. Maybe the only thing we think we're going to get by working hard is being called to try hard by our fellow students and co-workers. But if that's our mindset, we're forgetting the core principle. We work for the Lord, not for men. And it's the Lord who rewards us, not men. If we're working for earthly rewards and success, our focus is in the wrong place. Because when we work hard, we're not doing it for the successes of the American economy or instant consumer gratification. 
We're doing it for eternal blessing from the Lord who will reward anyone who works well and hard for Him, whether in the fourth grade classroom or the machine shop or the accountant's office. You know, these short and simple verses, they transform everything for us, don't they? They are radically Christ-focused and Christ-driven. And the repeated principle is we work for Him and not for men. Well, what about believers who are in authority over others? Paul turns to speak to them in verse 9 and again gives them a behavior, a principle, and a motivation. The behavior that masters are to have towards those under them is that they are to behave the same way, Paul says, and stop threatening. In other words, just as those under them are to treat them with respect and honor and serve wholeheartedly for Christ, so masters are to treat those under them with respect and honor, working wholeheartedly as to Christ. And particularly, that is going to mean that those in authority will not use their authority, their threats, as power to force or to manipulate. Those in leadership should lead by serving, recognizing that the essential equality they share with their employees is as fellow image bearers of God. When I think about this picture of servant leadership, of leading not with threats, force, and power, but by serving for the good of those under you. I think of George Washington. Some of you know history, and there's much to admire about Washington, but there's a particular moment I think of. It was after the Revolutionary War was over, and the Continental Congress was attempting to put together some sort of government in this nation, and if you know your history, you know they did it pretty badly at first. It looked like the country was not going to survive, and at one point, several from the army called a secret meeting And the purpose of the meeting was to consider making Washington king. Washington found out about the meeting and he showed up at it. And he addressed the men. And he said, men, I have never left your side for one moment. I have been the constant companion and witness of your distress. And my heart has ever expanded with joy when you have been praised. So I am not indifferent to your interests. But, said Washington, making me king is not in your best interest. And with humility he refused the position and urged them to be patient for the sake of their country. He won the army over, not by threats or force, but by service, love, and care. And that is the task of those in leadership. To encourage, to equip, to enable, maybe to hold accountable or even discipline when necessary but they should never abuse their authority or use threats to get more done or keep people in line. And the principle behind this behavior that Paul gives is this. He says, Masters, remember, you have a master in heaven as well. God is your master as well as your servant's master. In other words, you too are to do all that you do for Christ. You too should serve not for earthly goals or to please men, but to please your heavenly Father. You too should lead according to the will of God with the same sincerity of heart that we discussed above. And the motivation. What of their motivation? The motivation that Paul gives is to remember that with this Master who is in heaven, there is no partiality. He will judge every leader, every manager, every teacher, every person in authority with the same standard of righteousness that He judges everyone else. And if our Master in heaven treats everyone with 
without partiality, but with justice and fairness and graciousness, then every master or those in authority ought to imitate him and treat those under them with justice, fairness, and graciousness. So their behavior is to behave in the same way, serving Christ without threatening. The principle is because they have a master in heaven who watches over them. And the motivation is we have a judge who will judge without partiality. So this is God's call that our work would be entirely shaped by Christ in us, our hope for glory, whether we are in authority or under authority. But as we end, let me, let me back up again and look at the big picture. This passage, once again, is a challenge that if we belong to Christ, it ought to be evident in our lives. You know, we say that anyone can become a Christian by repenting of our sin and putting our trust fully in Jesus who died for us in our place. And that is true. But it's not a formula. It's not a formula we follow. It is a real decision to turn away from living for ourselves and giving ourselves up to Jesus who has all authority on heaven and on earth and so can redeem us and save us and bring us to be with Him forever if we will repent and give ourselves to Him. And that salvation in Christ, that work of God's Spirit in us, can change our marriages, can change our families, can change our priorities, it changes our character, and it changes our work. It changes our work by making it not just about income or grades, but about part of our service for Christ and the way that we image Him and what we do. Now there's a famous, possibly apocryphal story about three stonemasons who were just starting work on a cathedral in Britain. And a visitor, it was said, walked by them and stopped to engage them in conversation. And he said to the first one, well, what are you, what are you doing? And the first one said, well, I'm cutting stone. Well, that was a true answer. That's what he was doing. It didn't give much of a big picture, but that was true. And the, seventh, the second worker chimed in and said, well, me, I, I'm earning a living for my family. Also true. And there was a pause, and the visitor looked at the third and said, well, well what are you doing here? And he said, well, I'm building a cathedral, a cathedral for God and His glory and His people. And if we're Christ's, that third answer should be uppermost in our minds whenever we think of our work. What are we doing We are serving the Lord. Now maybe one of you might say, well, he was building a cathedral. A cathedral actually is for God's worship and glory and God's people. But but, you know, what about me? I'm just checking spreadsheets or selling fertilizer. But each thing we do is holy if it is done for the Lord. If it is something He has called us to do and we are doing it for Him. And everything that we do, if it is our work that He has given us, is a way that we image God. Many of you know Jeb Bland, former elder here, who's a carpenter who did renovation and remodeling on homes. And I remember Jeb saying to me one day, he said, you know, as a craftsman, it gives me great joy to do beautiful work as just a small way that I can dimly reflect the image of my Creator who works and creates beautiful things. But every one of us can say the same thing if we are willing. 
the accountant is working to bring order and to maintain integrity, which is something done in the image of God's character. Those who are working as insurance agents are helping to offer protection and wisdom and care for families. Medicine, doctors, those in research are part of God's ordained means of bringing healing care. Engineers bring order and stability, protect against disaster, and seek to build things with quality that will last. Students, you are growing in your knowledge of God and studying, putting in effort to know Him and His character and His world better. And we could keep going with profession after profession, but you get the point. Any job that is done well for the Lord is our opportunity to reflect Him and to honor Him as servants of Christ. And if we do so, we will receive from the Lord what we have done. And of course, we'd have to end by saying that obedience to God with joy and contentment in our work and school is not normal. You will stand out if you don't look a bit tired and depressed on Monday morning. And if you show up with cheerful joyfulness at the start of another week, we know, we recognize that sin and the fall have impacted work and made it hard it's by the sweat of our brow. But it has been redeemed by Christ. And we have an opportunity day in and day out to live differently because of Christ as a testimony to what He has done. Maybe there are some of you here this morning who think that's just weird to show up on Monday morning happy and cheerful. To think about studying and working as being for the Lord with this kind of attitude. Maybe it doesn't make sense. But if so, I would call you again to what is at the heart of everything Paul is saying. You and I are sinners who have no hope of eternal life or redemption. But God has sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross in our place and take our sins that we might be forgiven and redeemed and saved by Him. And if the God of the universe has acted to save us and make us His, that changes everything, including our attitude on Monday morning. And if you don't know this God and this Savior, I would encourage you to come to Him in faith and repentance this morning. Because all of this comes back to the same conclusion, doesn't it? There is a behavior God calls us to. Obedience with respect. Ready and willing to work hard. Treating those under us with grace and kindness. Without partiality. But this behavior rests on the principle. If we have been redeemed and saved by Christ, our work is done for Him and for Him alone to His glory. And so we may we do it this week because we long to please our Savior And may those around us see the image of Christ in us and ask the reason for the hope that we have that He, our Savior, might be honored and glorified. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we thank You for Jesus Christ, Your Son whom You sent to die in our place and rise again from the dead to be a living Savior who offers hope and eternal life, who all for all who come in repentance and faith and give ourselves to You. Thank You that this redeems us and redeems every part of our life, including our work and our study. And Father, I ask that as we go into a new school year, may students across Lancaster County see something different in those who know Jesus Christ 
in the way they work and study and learn. And may co-workers around Lancaster County see an image of the gospel as Christ's people work diligently and joyfully for Him and for Him alone. We ask that Your Spirit would work in us to bring this about for the glory of Your name. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.